The Carl Pearson Prize for Contemporary Research Contribution is one of the biggest awards in the statistical community. Given out every two years by the International Statistical Institute, the award recognizes research published sometime in the last 30 years that has had, quote, profound influence on statistical theory, methodology, practice, or applications, end quote. The work of the latest winner is the subject of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former Chair of Media, Journalism and Film. Our guest today is Yoav Benjamini, the Nathan and Lily Silver Professor of Applied Statistics at Tel Aviv University. Benjamini is also the 20 2019 winner of the ISI's Carl Pearson Prize for his work developing the concept of the false discovery rate. You all have congratulations and thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure You're to be here with you. You are being recognized for a paper that was published in 1995, and that's been cited more than 50,000 times, uh, and that has clearly had an impact on the field. How did this concept of false discovery rate come about, and how did you end up writing about it? Well, that's a, that's an interesting story. Uh, the issue of um, addressing uh, simultaneous selective inference, which is the technical uh, a technical term, I'll explain shortly. Uh, it comes up when you have uh, you're facing a problem of uh, inference, uh, which is not, um, okay, so <clears throat> the, the question of uh, addressing multiple uh, inferences in the form of having to put a many confidence interval and then choose the most promising one, or looking at uh, many groups and making comparisons between them and then choosing the largest outcome with the smallest outcome and making this comparison. All of these uh, questions raise the problem that the regular, a regular statistical tool fails to keep their properties. Um, so if we allow ourselves, if we do a test of a hypothesis comparing a drug to a control, and we allow ourselves a 5% uh, error of making a statement about a discovery or a rejected hypothesis in the statistical terminology, um, then uh, we know that there is a 5% chance that we are in error, even if we decide that there is a discovery. But suppose you're doing, uh, you're facing 20 such uh, potential discoveries. Now, well, on the average, you will find one with, uh, which is within this error. So uh, the question is, how do you cope? How do you mm -hmm. keep the original properties of, uh, of a statistical procedure when facing a large uh, number of potential uh, outcomes? And this is not a theoretical question. If you look at the, any uh, drug discovery experiment, and you have a uh, you have um, usually one or two uh, major measures, or they call they're called endpoints, measures of success, of efficacy of the drug. Uh, but on top of that, you have 
nowadays are dozens of other indications of the success of a drug. So let me give one example. Uh, suppose there is a drug that is given, and it's given in four different doses, and then it is given um, uh, with another drug, uh, with currently used drug, and another one. And then the efficacy is measured not only five years, as I said before, but also half a year after, and then survival, uh, in the long-term survival, and then uh, progression-free, if it is uh, cancer, and so on. And you can easily accumulate dozens of indications of the success of the treatment. And if you then pick up those handful which show success and treat them as if they are pure and innocent, then you lose the statistical properties. You have to protect against that. So with, with multiple comparisons, I mean, like the example that you just said, if, if you wanted to compare seven groups, there were 42 pairs of group comparisons you could make. But, but false discovery didn't catch fire at that point. There was more more recent technology and testing that really seemed to to be where your ideas of false discovery caught on and really have been applied. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah. No, the, the point is that at that time, the, the way to handle that one, and that was uh, suggested by uh, um, by Tuki and, uh, and uh, others, the way to do it was to have a very strong control. Mm -hmm. uh, I called it panic control, to control the probability of making even a single error. Mm -hmm. And that resulted with a very strong requirement on uh, a proof, on a valid proof. And uh, for us, for Yossi Hofberg and for me, um, I wasn't involved in, the, in working in the area. For Yossi Hofberg and for me, the problem came up when uh, he was first involved in a research about a drug related to drug pressure. And it was a quality of life questionnaire with more than 100 items. And uh, okay, there was a joint score, and that was a single indication of success, but also you wanted to say, well, does the drug improve, uh, reduces headaches? Does it improve other things? So the question, the, the problem, um, really was that using any of the methods, and Yossi was one of the designers of methods that controlled the Hopper methods. He was one of the designers of problems that exactly controlled the probability of making even one error. Uh, we ended up uh, short-handed. I mean, it, it didn't provide any, uh, any indication uh, for uh, success. So um, we started the to do some other thing. At that same time, uh, there was uh, a paper that discussed a graphical method for estimating the number of null hypotheses from a graph of the p-values. The point was that you could use the big, the bigger data in order to estimate what are really, what is really the problem you're facing. Because if you understand that, okay, you are facing 100, but about 50 of them are real effects then you have to protect, mm -hmm. to offer less protection than otherwise. So this is where we, this is where we stopped before we started with the false discovery rate. Yeah. Talk the about point, that. The point was that, uh, the point was that essentially, 
uh, after after reading uh, a paper by Zorich who argued uh, really, you know, uh, the fact of all the time, but he actually said, you know, you don't need to control. He was not talking about control. He was talking about errors. And he's saying, let's let's look at the relative errors, and that is the number of discoveries, the expected number of discoveries out of the discoveries, and we captured this uh, and uh, and formulated it into a new concept. And this is the false discovery rate. Instead of just controlling the number of errors or the probability of making even one error, we control the proportion of the errors among the discoveries. Mm. That is, it becomes a ratio, and we are trying to control only that. Now, that means that if we make many rejections, we allow errors. And that was the issue. Mm. We were more lenient than right. the usual panic approach that uh, that happened. Mm -hmm. And so the objection uh, out of pen for many um, of our reviewers was that here we hamper the pureness of the protection that the usual mm -hmm. approach uh, held. Do not allow any error with a probability of 0.05 okay. or any other probability, chosen probability. And that's why that was caused uh, the problem. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, some people appreciated it, some not. <laughs> it, interestingly, once we get, uh, we got very, very quickly the, the result. And I sent it to John Tukey, who was my, um, uh, wasn't uh, my advisor at Princeton, where I did my PhD, but uh, of course was the main one. And I thought that somebody already did it. and. Uh, mm -hmm. He just complained about the fact that uh, the pages weren't numbered. <laughs> that, made no comment. that sounds so, like a professor. <laughs> so uh, a month later, we submitted the paper. That was 89. And as you, mm -hmm. and, uh, as you mentioned, it took us uh, uh, three journals and, uh, and uh, almost and five years, not for the original journal, uh, original idea, but the truncated idea. That is, mm -hmm. um, as I noted, we had a method of estimating the number of true null hypotheses, and that's useful in methods for controlling the false discovery rate. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't include that, and uh, that, that the result that was published in '95 was the Benjamini Hoffman procedures, which is non adaptive in nature. Mm -hmm. And um, I think one interesting note to understand uh, uh, how statistics have changed is the fact that in the first review that we got, we were asked to do a simulation. Okay. And uh, we were asked, uh, we were questioned about the concept that we had, and uh, we uh, changed it a bit, and we did a simulation. In the, that second version that we submitted to the same journal, we did a simulation for four eight, 16, and then 64 <laughs> size of a problem, hypothesis being tested. Yes. And we got complaints from the reviewer 
how can someone think about doing 64 tests of hypothesis? It's enough to, do, to stop at 20. Nobody does more than that. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Tel Aviv University's Yoav Benjamini, winner of the 2019 Carl Pearson Prize from the International Statistical Institute. Yoav, this paper was published in 1995. We've talked a bit about the problems you faced in getting it published, and it's been cited again more than 50,000 times. When did you and your co-author maybe realize that this was something that was picking up steam? Uh, you know, if you, after all this struggle of getting it published, and and when you saw people start picking it up, was there a moment where you're like, oh yes, this is something that really is going to have the impact we want it to have on the field? Yeah. Um, well, 95 wasn't the end of the, the road. The original paper was published in 2000. That's, that took another five years. But uh, by that, uh, we knew, uh, I knew from the beginning that uh, it's something to work. I had problems with the concept of uh, controlling the probability of having even one error, mm. because how can I, as a statistician, control the probability of making any error throughout my lifetime at the point of five? That's impossible. Now, controlling the false discovery rate is feasible, even if you do it in each study separately. So I had a good feeling that we're on the right, mm-hmm. on the right road. Um, but uh, I think that uh, there were uh, a few people who, who really uh, made an impact on that and, uh, and, other, and a few areas in science who made an impact on that on its acceptance. The first is a visit by um, a, a visit by Donahoe that came after a collaborator of mine, uh, Felix Abramovich, came from uh, sabbatical, brought in the idea of wavelets. Hmm. And actually, with wavelets analysis, we started to show that it makes sense to threshold wavelets coefficient with FDR, with the pH approach. Then Dave Donahoe spent the sabbatical in Israel in 94 and uh, got the idea, liked it very much, and then went back to Stanford and uh, talked about it. And people around Stanford, uh, uh, most notably uh, Brad Efron mm. and his students, mm. and <clears throat> Jonathan Taylor and, and uh and then other people in Tibetan and so on. People got interested in that. And essentially at the same time in the, in the uh, 2000, around the year 2000, the number of uh, genes that were analyzed for differential, differential gene expression reached uh, sort of the area of 2000, 4000. Wow. And suddenly mm-hmm. this idea of false discovery rate control in this in problems of this size became a very practical solution. So two things happened uh, jointly. Now the, the, the work with uh, Donahoe, uh, with Dave and then with Ian Johnston and with uh, Felix Abramovich that continued through um, 95, 96, 97. Johnston talked about it in the Walden lectures in 97. The paper wasn't published until much later but it had it had a big a big impact. It was it was a very theoretically well theoretically founded thought. Concepts like testimation came up. That is, if you're facing a big problem, use FDR control for 
living out the coefficients which don't pass the threshold of significance, strangely enough, significance makes sense, just leave them out and estimate all the other parameters. That's good enough in theoretical, with theoretical justification, reaching in smallest problems really the right convert, uh, rate of asymptotic optimality and constant and so on and so forth. So that gave also a push to the interest, to the theoretical interest in the false discovery rate. So with, but, with gene expression, with thousands of genes being studied, you know, it's, it's easy to imagine, you know, the, the number of comparisons that one might make. Uh, you know, we, I was reading about some of the, the background material that you had also sent out where you, there was noted that uh, it's been, that FDR has been used in astronomy and brain research and psychology. Yeah. Could, could you talk about a few of the examples in these different areas other than gene expression where FDR has proven to be very useful? Uh, sure. Um, you know, one of the things that I enjoy is working myself in this field. So ah. uh, I've been working in uh, animal behavior, uh, in the meteorology, in meteorology, in brain research, a uh, member of the Sagol School for Neuroscience. So, uh, so my interests are also in uh, very much uh, in, in applied areas of uh, statistics and other sciences. And the, one of the nice things about uh, FDR is that really these uh, problems have given rise to development of the FDR methodology. Mm. So for instance, our interest in um, uh, climatological areas together with my, uh, with, uh, my ex-students and now colleague, Dani Cotielli, brought up interest of dealing with uh, dependency. Mm. And uh, and that was uh, back in in the nineties, our original work, and then dependency because of uh, medical research uh, brought a very important uh, work on uh, the properties of uh, our procedure under the positive dependency uh, in brain research. Brain research, uh, especially uh, fMRI, where you image the brain while the subject is functioning and you try to locate areas of activation. So this uh, functional MRI areas of research brought the problem that actually uh, there are many voxels and you can do inference on individual points in the brain. But you're actually interested in islands of activities, in regions of uh, activity. And so suddenly it's not only the individual points, but cluster of points. Mm -hmm which are come of interest. And Genovese and Wasserman and their collaborators were interested in that, and uh, Nic um, Nicholas and others. And, and it brought the need to do, the first need to do hierarchical uh, uh, analysis of false discovery rate, first at the level of, of clusters and then going down into mm -hmm. inside it. Um, later on, trying to correlate um, regions in the brain with uh, SNPs, with uh, locations on the, on the genome, uh, that, that brings up huge problems. I mean, this is about uh, half a million SNPs, and there are some 50,000 uh, points, voxels, points in the brain where, where you measure the size. And when you check the association, the old potential association between the two, you reach the 13 billion 
different approaches, but you need new tools and yeah. work with and work with Marina, my students. We we started with uh, building uh, tools for iGraphical uh, uh, problems, and they rely back on problems that Danny Cotieri worked by himself and with us on general theoretical trees of hypothesis and how do you make fault discovery rate control along layers, on outside nodes, on things that are scientifically of interest. Mm -hmm. uh, so the most recent, our most recent work with Chiara Sabati, Marina and Peterson, deals with microbiome data mm -hmm. and then brings up a Tree, a very deep tree that is uh, that is constructed out of the of the biological uh, tree of species, families, and so mm -hmm. on and so forth. So each, um, as we enter into more and more interesting problems, we have to build up based on the original concept, but build up new uh, methodology and sometimes modify the concepts as well. So one of the one of the things that you're bringing up here is the complexity of this all of this kind of research in science and statistics. And one of the jobs that journalists have to do is to try to explain this to a general audience. So you've got a couple of journalists sitting here. Do you have any sort of both frustrations with journalists <laughs> and tips for journalists who need to do a good job in explaining the complexity of some of the work that you've been involved in and some of the things that you've just been talking about? You're talking to me, you're asking this question on a bad day because uh, <laughs> no. I've been involved over the last uh, almost a year in uh, running a committee for design strategy for data sciences in the Israel Academy. Mm. And today came out uh, a description of what we did in the local paper. <laughs> oh, and it's no. all <laughs> completely, completely, not only not in focus, but simply wrong. So, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so what did the journalists, what did the journalists do wrong? Question. I, I, I think that, strangely enough, I think I learned from one journalist. Uh, we called, you see, there is the, people who are working on multiplicity, like Tuki, were and 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 uh, other people's here were interested in the problem of selection. The fact that you are selecting particular inferences. Uh, changes the, the, the statistical properties of what you do. Mm -hmm. It's the selection. Mm -hmm. And the way to, to deal with them was in terms of simultaneous inference and so on. I think simultaneous inference is a difficult concept for journalists. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think the false discovery rate is more intuitive. That is, I yeah. distributed, uh, I say, um, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm checking... Um, 130 types of foods, uh, people who take more of them or less of them, and see how they, does it affect their, uh, their getting uh, cancer, specific cancer. Um, and then I produce, I say, um, eight of them seem to cause, okay? So I have eight discoveries. Now, 
false discovery rate, people understand, you know, how many of them might be false because I'm never sure when I'm doing mm -hmm. statistical analysis. So in that sense, it's a very, I think I'm asking a journalist now, I think it is, <laughs> it is a reasonable concept. I'm yeah. not asking about the family, what define a family and so on. I have, you know, I'm presenting you discoveries and I want to tell you what is my assessment of the proportion of false discoveries here. I can't mm -hmm. tell you exactly, but maybe I can tell you on the average yeah. expect, in expectation. So in that sense, I think it is something which is communicable. Yes, uh, I understand I that. <laughs> so, you know, there's there's been a recent discussions about reproducibility and about the American Statistical Association has a has a p-value statement. There have been conferences. There have been special issues of journals that are talking about this. Can can you reflect on what you think about this issue of of p-values and the role of p-values in inference? Um. Yes, yes, because it's uh, very much uh, related to what I was talking about, mm -hmm. the, issue about the issue of selective inference. Um, um, I think that, uh, that the whole attack on the p-value is not justified, and in fact there is a retreat from that, because the p-value is our purest defense against being fooled by randomness in the sense that it needs minimal assumption. And in fact, if you are conducting an experiment, a well-designed experiment, you can assure that the assumption will hold. There's no other statistical method that can guarantee it. I mean, if you're doing if you're doing an estimator, you assume some model outside where you can assure it. So in that sense, there is no reason to attack the p-value. Now, the p-value was singled out uh, First of all, because there are some some uh, problems with uh, misinterpretation and so on, but that's true about any other method, about confidence interval, likelihood ratio, and so on. Mm -hmm. The point was that uh, it was clear when the, the problems of replicability and reproducibility started, it was clear that statistics is part of the problem. There is being open, there is being the effect of being open, and so on and so forth. But the, the statistical methods were part of that. And there was a void, and the void was entered by people outside um, uh, the profession, and it was easy to attack the p-value, especially since, you know, in statistics, there are the Bayesians, uh, there is the Bayesian religion, and the likelihood religion, <laughs> and so on and so forth, and that's an opportunity to attack the p-value. Um, but that's not what happened, what, what really behind it. And it's not uh, using a threshold like p less than 0.05 or p, p less than 0.05. There are two basic, uh, in my view, there are two basic problems uh, that underline all statistical uh, problems. And one of them has changed in recent years. And the fact is selective inference. And the second one is uh, hunting out the real uncertainty that assures uh, replicability. And I'm talking about replicability, not reproducibility, because replicability is the property of the result of a study, and it can only be established by replication. But we can try to enhance the replicability. And one of the obstacles to replicability is the fact that people don't address selective inference. The example that I gave, 
genomics, brain research, and so on, people started to address the problem where the number or the, where the size of the problems that addressed came close to a thousand or past a thousand. In, in the QTL analysis, it was around 700. In, uh, in gene expression, it was 4,000. When you reach 4,000, people realize that they have to address selective inference. But in many areas, like, um, like uh, medical research, which is not for regulatory, they're, they're very careful about selective inference. But the regular papers that are being published in the best of the medical journals, like the New England Journal of Medicine, on the average, on a sample took of 100, there are 27 uh, 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 different inferences made. In uh, experimental psychology, the average is around 70. It goes from, uh, if I'm not mistaken, from 6 to 700 you can find in papers. And there, people don't address selective inference. Mm -hmm. Don't address, I mean, oh, if they do in a minimal way, but not appropriately. And so, uh, and this is something that has changed. It has changed because uh, science has been industrialized some 20 years ago with the invention of tools like genomics and proteomics and uh, brain imaging and, uh, and recording tools in, psych in the psychology and, and so on. It is so easy to collect so many things. Uh, passing epidemi in epidemiology from taking out the patient's uh, uh, records to taking them out of the computer. I mean, it's so easy to collect the information and slowly the size increased and people didn't pay attention to that. So selective inference, which is not addressed, and this is true by all, or by all properties, confidence interval, p-values, likelihood ratio, credence intervals, all of these suffer from, from this problem. Well, Yoav, uh, I think we could probably talk about this all day long. With thank you so much time uh, for spending part of your day with us. You're very welcome, <laughs> and I'm uh, was happy to share my ideas with you and with the audience. <laughs> That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at statsandstories.net and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.